Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Saul K here. I'm super excited to interview this amazing human being who has an incredible resume and an amazing life story that will wow and possibly shock you. So, without further ado, let me edify the man properly. Howard Kaplan, a native of Los Angeles, has lived in Israel and traveled extensively through Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. At the age of 21, he was sent on a mission into the Soviet Union to smuggle a dissident's manuscript on microfilm to London. His first trip was a success. On his second trip, he transferred a manuscript to the Dutch ambassador inside his Moscow embassy. A week later, he was arrested in Kharkiv in the Ukraine and interrogated for two days there and then two days in Moscow before being expelled from the USSR. The KGB had picked him up for meeting dissidents and did not know about the manuscript transfers. He holds a BA in Middle East History from UC Berkeley and an MA in Philosophy of Education from UCLA. He is the author of five novels and one of his latest books, Damascus Cover is now a major motion picture starring Jonathan Rice Myers, Sir John Hurt, and Olivia Thurlby. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Howard Kaplan. Welcome to the show, Howard. How are you, sir? I'm great. <laughs> you know, I just had to walk from the kitchen to the office to be interviewed. This is the new world. I very happy about it. Work from home commute. We love it. We love it. So for those of my audience that is, are not familiar with you, talk a little bit about your background in terms of growing up and specifically in Los Angeles. And more specifically, we're going to talk Jewish upbringing. Okay. Um, a very central part of my life and what led to both my travels and subsequent writing and how I write and what I write about comes from the fact that my parents were Holocaust survivors. They had a very unusual dichotomy in that my mother was Hungarian, as is well known. Uh, the Hungarian Jews were taken last in the spring of 44 to Auschwitz. So four of her five sisters survived. Uh, three of them in the camp along two with her and one hiding out with a Jewish family excuse me, with a Christian family in Budapest. My Polish father had the opposite story. He had uncles in Los Angeles, and he was able to leave in 1938. He was the youngest of five siblings, and he had the wherewithal. He was a very smart guy to see. I remember he told me we went to Poland to his hometown when I was 35. 
And he said, he showed me the main square and showed me, there already were people shouting and picketing, don't shop in Jewish stores. And Novosunch, which is in central, uh, southern Poland near Krakow. In fact, in a very odd experience, if you watch um, Ted Lasso, about two episodes ago, there was a Polish girl who's the girlfriend and the uh, leader of the other soccer team. The owner says, I have a great ear for uh, accents. Where are you from? And she goes, Nova Sunch. I about fell off the couch. It's a small town of 45,000, 17,000 Jews before Hitler, probably larger now. And my guess would be, because I sometimes, I put my aunt's address of Ramad Gan in the Damascus cover, and it made it into the film, her street. You know, they talk about where they have to go. That I bet some Jewish writer knew about Novosunch and threw it into Ted Lasso. Uh, my real point is, you know, I had a kind of traditional upbringing at a conservative synagogue. I wasn't very enamored by Hebrew school. I used to go to the gas station on the corner and try to coax jelly beans out of the little glass machines by pushing the lever back and forth. But when I was 20, I went to something called the Brandeis Bardeen Camp Institute for Collegiate People. I love it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I read a book by Arthur Morse called While Six Million Died. It said to me, what the Holocaust, that the Holocaust was well known. People in the governments knew about it, but even bombing the rail lines was considered a diversion of a strategy. And I was, I went crazy. And I decided I was 20 that I wasn't gonna sit on the sidelines. So I was at the Hebrew University I went to the Arab countries, visited, tried to visit the Jewish quarter, both the Damascus cover, which actually was an earlier book. It was filmed 40 years later. I wrote it when I was 27. And my new release, The Syrian Sunset, deals with the remnant of Syrian Jews. And then I went to Moscow to meet with the, with the dissidents. So the Holocaust propelled me. We're going to get to, to the to the middle and present part of the story too, but I want to pause on a couple of notes. Fascinating. Okay, so where did your parents meet? They were both Holocaust survivors. So did they meet in Europe or here? Or it, uh, they were. It was Chidoch in a dentist's office in Los Angeles. <laughs> I love. You know, that. one of the dentists. The dentist was the, my father's cousin. This is great. And some relatives of my mother were patients, and I think they felt they had something in common with the Holocaust. So did they schedule dental appointments back to back? Is that how it went down or was it a little more formal? <laughs> I, I think my father told me, if I recall, we did some video testimony uh, not so long ago that my mother was in an English school at Los Angeles High School. She had only recently arrived mm. and he met her after her class, mm. night school in English. She was very beautiful blonde. And so I think he's decided between the Holocaust and how pretty she was, he was done. And he married her. They were born, they, they were married it, right after the war, because my mother was a 
in the DP camp in Munich, which were, was the largest one. She came over. My father fought in the American army in Alaska because he came before the war. Yeah. He was a permanent resident. So they were married in 1949, right in the shadow of the Holocaust. Amazing. In Los Angeles at the conservative shul. Or the, in Los Angeles. Okay, great. Which shul was it, by the way? I'm familiar with many of them. Temple Betham on La Cienega Boulevard. My father was a lifelong member. He was very close with the founding rabbi, Jacob Pressman. Mm -hmm. And my son went to day school at uh, Pressman Academy. The day school is part of that temple. I love it. Okay, great. And so just to stay on the topic for a moment. So how much of your Jewish upbringing, I know you said you read this transformative book at the age of 20, but how much of it really in education was formed and informed by the Holocaust, post-Holocaust, you know, age that you were in? In truth, and my mother talked about this often, in the 50s, people didn't talk about the Holocaust at all. It wasn't on the radar of Jewish life, it was too horrific, and the people didn't talk about it. I remember there was a miniseries called The Holocaust. It's disappeared now. I've never seen anybody refer to it, but it was the first by a writer named Gerald Green. He was also famous for having written a, a book and a film, which is much more well-known, called 12 Angry Men, which is a kind of classic film. And my mother said, after she watched that, or as much of it as she was able to watch, she could now start to talk more easily because she felt other people, it was a big event, it was like an NBC or CBS, you know, before cable, before streaming, uh, you know, four night uh, depiction of the Holocaust. I have to look it up. I don't remember who was in it. Uh, but that opened her up to begin to talk about it. So I grew up in a house where things weren't discussed, mm -hmm. uh, not their past. My father, who had been grown up Orthodox, broke his kashru probably for the first time on the train from New York to Los Angeles because he said you had to eat and he couldn't speak any English. He remembered him telling me, I pointed. You know, they stopped at a station and he ate whatever he could. He was a real survivor in every sense of the word. And he was very successful in business as a painting contractor, bought real estate, apartment buildings, and lived to 103, and lucidly until the last few months. So he really was a survivor, but he was never able to make peace with, the rabbi said, Rabbi Klickfeld of Bethlehem at his funeral said, I think quite well, he overcame a lot and a lot he didn't. And I think his primary family were still his four brothers and sisters who and their kids who perished, all of them. That's what I meant by the polar opposite. My mother had all these sisters who survived. My father had virtually nobody. Mm -hmm. And it marked him. He was darkened in his private moments by that. So when I was young, in my Hebrew school years, I was in rebellion. Nobody really talked to me much. I lived a lot in my room upstairs with the TV and the Hardy Boys and Tom Swift. And I used to even tear out the backs of paperbacks 
They don't have this anymore where you, they had order forms. And I would paste coins to the back of the, because I was too independent. My father would have bought the books, written a check. And I mailed the dollar bills and the coins for the classics. I was 12 years old, I know, because I still have those paperbacks. Tale of Two Cities, um, Jane Eyre, you know, and I just sat upstairs and I read them. So I was not a very Jewish kid. We lit Shabbat candles and did a, you know, a rudimentary kiddush. But after this experience at Brandeis, I met Arthur Hertzberg there, who is probably the most famous Zionist scholar, the author of the book, The Zionist Idea. And he said to me, I'm going to Jerusalem next week. Uh, I have a little bit of pull there. I can get you into the junior year abroad program if you come with me. And I wasn't very good in math, but he said the following. What makes more sense? Four years rioting in Berkeley or three years rioting in Berkeley and one year in Jerusalem? So I found his math persuasive. <laughs> and off I went with no Hebrew because Hebrew school, I, I you know, I was left with about four words. Uh, as I say, because I was mostly in the gas station with the jelly beans. Uh, and I had a fabulous story in Israel. I got, I arrived, they signed me in. He had a lot of pull. They gave me a dorm room. And then he said, you're too late. The last opon, the Hebrew language intensive course, started a month ago. So we've got to catch you up. So they called a tutor. Phones in Israel didn't work well then, uh, 1970. So I went to her apartment. I knocked on the door. She was as big as a house, pregnant. She says, I'm due in nine days. Come in, we got to catch you up fast. You know, this is the best of Israel. There are some th things that are not so good maybe going on now. But that was the idea. In America, nobody nine days before delivery would have started with a new student. It said, I've got to catch you up. And she did. And I joined the uh, lowest Opan and Hebrew language course. And despite all these years, my Hebrew remains pretty near fluent. Amazing story. So this is the missing gaps in, in your bio. Okay. So you go on a mission at 21. Now, were you in the Israeli army or how did that mission actually unfold? At the Hebrew university on the junior abroad program, by chance, there was a woman from my high school, Hamilton high school in Los Angeles, a good friend. She was a year younger. She was on her sophomore year. And she met a guy, an American Israeli. In other words, he had made Aliyah. And they became a couple. And he was tasked by who exactly I can't say or won't say to recruit and train American kids on their junior year abroad to, on their way home, go into the USSR and deliver Hebrew books to the underground Hebrew teachers. Uh, as Hebrew, as books were illegal in Russia then, to the Soviet Union, and you couldn't teach Hebrew, and you weren't allowed to buy, there were no Hebrew books that were purchasable. So we began a once a week training course. I don't remember how many of us there were, a dozen maybe, to learn rudimentary things that would help us. For example, how to get to a contact's address 
in Moscow from Red Square without asking directions so that you wouldn't have to stop because anybody could turn you in. It was a big society of informers. You got points for informing. So you could then walk to the Jewish home where the dissident leader might be living or somebody who would organize it for you, an English speaker or a Hebrew speaker, without having to ask directions. They decided that the person they thought was the most competent of this group would bring out a roll of microfilm. Microfilm in those days were like micro dots. You can see them in the old spy movies. They Books and pages were reduced to very small rolls of film for smuggling them out. So somehow they decided I was the person to do that. And they gave me some cash for my expenses. And off I went to London. And did you know what was the contents of the microfilm or no? You know, this is kind of an interesting story for me, a newer story. I was told that it was a Yiddish book called, excuse me, a book an autobiographical either novel or, or nonfiction book, My Father Killed Macaulay's. Macaulay's had been the head of the Yiddish theater in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, and he was assassinated. He was um, assassinated by the Russian secret police. So this was a book about this. However, in 2017, the film adaptation of the Damascus cover came out. It has seven Israeli actors in it in secondary roles. It's on Tubi. It's free currently in the U.S. and rentable because Tubi has commercials. If you don't want to do that. So I was asked to write an article about some of these experiences when the film came out for the National Library of Israel. And I talked to this gentleman there uh, from Zoom also or email about this. He says, let me go look for the book because it was supposed to have been taken to the National Library of Israel. So he comes back a few days later and says, there's nothing here. There's no manuscript. There's nothing. So from that came a little suspicion that maybe I brought out something else that I didn't know. But I was 21 and angry and ready to do anything, and I probably would have brought it out anyway. But that's actually what happened. And essentially, the concept is you're bringing educational materials to Jews in Russia, right? You're not, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not necessarily, you know, educating them on how to start a revolution or, you know, you're really like... No, nothing. They have underground Hebrew teachers, and I'm just there for a two-week tour. You know, and in each city, I'm meeting. It was the it was the gambit. On the second time I went to Russia, to give you an idea of how sophisticated the underground Hebrew teachers were, you know, it's a different world prior to FedEx. You know, it's just hard to remember how it happened. This is 1972. They flew me to Tel Aviv for a weekend, and I picked up actual novels. Israeli novels for the Hebrew teachers that were autographed by their authors. One of the ones I remember that I had was uh, Melech Basar Badam, the king and the king of flesh and blood. Uh, I don't remember what else I had. I don't remember how many I had. 
But, you know, I zipped over to Tel Aviv for the weekend and went back to London. I used to sleep on planes well. And in those days, unlike today, they flew those big 747s that were never nearly full. And most of the time you could stretch out on four seats in the back and, you know, enjoy yourself. I'm just going to speak at a Mensa organization in July. I'm not a member, but they invited me. And I had to pay $50 extra to get an aisle seat. They were mostly taken up because I'm, you know, in that state now where I don't want to be crunched between two people, even on a national flight from LA to Baltimore, Washington. Understood. Okay. So a couple more questions about this phase of life. It's so fascinating. So were you essentially paid to do this or the sort of the organization was funded and you were a volunteer? I was given cash for expenses. And I remember exactly what happened because it was a kind of something that stayed with me. The cash would be to buy tickets and the two week tours, they were in tourists, they were inside Russia, were remarkably cheap. You could fly to Russia for two weeks, including round trip airfare, internal flights, hotels and food for $325 total. And I got more money from some supporters in London. And I remember I ended up with extra money. I don't remember how much, but it was all cash, but I had extra money. I went back to Israel and had an Israeli, and I was from there after Israel, I was gonna go back to Los Angeles. I had an Israeli roommate at the Hebrew University. I said, I don't want to keep this extra cash, but I want you to have it because then at least is in Israel. He didn't want to take it. He was Orthodox, modern Orthodox. He was a scientist. And in the end, he took it. And I didn't stay in close contact with him. However, when I was last in Israel, which was 2016, I found him. Now we have, you know, phone books and the internet. You can find people. And I went to his house and I visited with him and his wife. Uh, I hadn't seen him in 25 years. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, So that's what happened. I didn't make a profit, but it didn't cost me anything. I love it. Okay, now, fast forward briefly. Apparently you were detained by the KGB for a couple days. Is this accurate? I went back the second year. Right, the second year I went back. And again, on like a five city tour. I meet with Jews in each place. They took me to Babi Yar in Kiev, outside Kiev. Remember, this is before Ukraine became an independent country. So these are entities of the Soviet Union. And I went to Kharkov, which is now known present day as Kharkiv, which you see often in the news because the Ukrainians took the national language and names back. I met with some Jews in their apartment. They walked me back to the trolley about 11 at night and a wall of uniformed and ununiformed KGB and maybe military jumped out and threw us against the wall. I was not harmed, took us to KGB headquarters and it was late at night. I said, I wanted to use the bathroom and they said, we'll take you back to your hotel. And I was interrogated for two days in the hotel manager's office. 
politely, this was the era of detente. I wouldn't go back to Russia today. I wouldn't do this today. Uh, but it was a different time. And they then took me to Moscow and interrogated me for two more days in Moscow. Okay, use the word politely, meaning you were politely interrogated or what What was that in reference to? Yes, I mean, what I like to joke about because it's true, if I wanted something to eat, I got better service from the hotel manager's office during interrogation than I did in their restaurant in the hotel. I could use the facilities. There were regular threats. The threats were not of physical harm. The threats were you're guilty of espionage and we can put you on trial and put you away for 15, for 10 years. In fact, I was such a cocky kid, which I'm not in the least bit at this point. I had been prepared, trained in London to expect this threat of 15 years imprisonment. God, I haven't told the story in decades. I forgot this completely. So when they told me, they threatened me for 10 years, first thing that went through my mind is I feel slighted. Other people are threatened with 15 years, and I'm only being threatened with 10 years, uh, which isn't to say I was not afraid. But basically, the tours were 14 days and you had a scheduled flight in and a scheduled flight out. I was arrested on ten day on day 10. I felt they had four days to play with me without, because nobody knew, you know, you didn't know cell phones. Nobody wasn't in contact with anybody without creating an international incident. In other words, if they would have held me <laughs> on day 15, it would have gone public. The people in London would have made a lot of noise. So I felt if I can hold out for four days, I'm most likely going to be okay. And that's actually what happened. I was expelled on day 14. Just say, what did I learn from that? Yeah, from that experience. I mean, what'd you learn about yourself? And then what'd you learn about the process and anything else? I learned that I was a pretty tough kid because this Holocaust experience of my family had toughened me, uh, even though we were economically privileged, so there were no, nothing was lacking in my childhood. There was, again, this shadow of what could happen, what could happen in the world. And I was kind of ready to do a lot of things. Maybe the cute thing was when they expelled me from the airport, the main airport in Moscow, to get on my scheduled flight. The guy said to me, one of the two interrogators, I don't want to say anything in print about this. Because next time we meet you, it can be anywhere in the world, we can find you, and we won't be so humanistic. I remember him using that word, humanistic, in English. It wasn't exactly the very beginning, but it was close. And I thought, well, I can write about this. I can't, it wasn't like I never thought about being a writer. I had been doing journals during my year in Israel. But I think that was at the moment that I turned into 
an inclination to write serious historical thrillers about Jewish issues, because I had the sense that if I wrote a thriller, it could reach a larger audience than let's say a more literary novel or a romance. Well, romance is probably would have. So, and I didn't really think the KGB would be following me to uh, West LA to ram me with a car if I wrote anything about this stuff. It was just an attempt at intimidation. As I said, it was, it was a time when relations with the USSR were better. If I'm not mistaken, I think Nixon went to Moscow. Somewhere in here, I'd have to look. He met with Brezhnev. It was not unheard of that American could be arrested, but nothing like now, where they just seem to grab anybody they feel like whether they're a basketball player or a Wall Street Journal journalist, and throw them in a prison and accuse them of something. As I say, I would not, I would have written at this stage fearlessly, but I would not have gone to Moscow under that kind of danger. It's not to say it was without danger, but the odds were certainly better than they are now. For sure, agreed. Okay, so under the threat of uh, inhumane punishment, potentially from the KGB, you launch your writing career, okay? Or you see, at least the, the, the seed in your mind is planted. I can actually continue my rebellion and my resistance to what's happening by documenting and entertaining people through a historical lens. So tell me what happened shortly thereafter. So I began writing a novel about these experiences in Russia. I couldn't sell it, but I got very close. A major publisher, William Morrow, a senior editor, wanted to do it, but he couldn't convince the editorial board. Usually for a publisher to buy a book, they need four senior editors to agree. But I thought, hey, I was 23 and I almost got a book published. This is pretty good. So I sat down and wrote, which actually was the Damascus cover. The first book was about Soviet Jewry and the Damascus cover was about Syrian Jewry. There had been 75,000 Jews in Syria at the founding of Israel in 1948. When I was there briefly in 1971, there were 5,000 left as hostages. And by the time I wrote my new novel, The Syrian Sunset, there were no longer any Jews in Syria. However, there are remnants. For example, it's, as I say, I write historical novels. So there is a beautiful boutique remodeled hotel in Damascus, which I write about, called the Talisman Hotel, where in 19, excuse me, in 2007, Nancy Pelosi and her congressional delegation met with President Bashar al-Assad. And it's just, imagine, it's a boutique hotel with beautiful gardens and fountains and outdoor eating. That had been a Jewish home, one of the uh, wealthy Jews of Damascus. Uh, so back to this, I wrote the Damascus cover. I got an agent, different agent, and he sold it to Dutton. And they really liked the book. 
It was published originally in 1977, uh, translated into seven or eight languages. I republished it when people found it and wanted to make a film of it. So I think last week or yesterday, it was number 200 in all Kindles sold, excuse me, 200,000. Let's not exaggerate here. It's still pretty good in all the Kindles in the world for a book published in 1977. Uh, the story holds up as stories hold up. You can read an old John the Carré novel and you never feel, well, this is dated because they're trying to figure out how to trace a phone call where now on your phone, you just push a button and it tells you not only the locale, but the local of the locale of the person. So uh, I published that book. I rewrote the Russian story, the same, oh, I lost you. Got, so I rewrote that story, uh, the Russian story and published it in a book that's out of print. It's my only book that's out of print uh, because I've written a lot about the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and now the Syrian civil war in the Syrian sunset. And I just didn't rebring this old Russian Jewry book out. It seemed less current, but you know, old copies of it exist. It's called the Chopin Express, which was the name of the train that went from Moscow to Vienna that brought most of the Soviet Jews when the doors were finally opened in the 1990s uh, to the West and ultimately uh, to Israel. Uh, and then I wrote three books about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then I most recently have this book, as I mentioned, The Syrian Sunset. Here's my question for you. Now, I know you have a, a bachelor's and a master's. And so, you know, the, the journey of a writer, I've written some books myself. My brother's a writer. I know a lot of writers. It's not instant financial security. So there are things that, are, that have to happen along the way. So for people certainly that are aspiring writers, I'm sure they're looking up to you to, well, what does this path look like? How do you survive from not getting your first book published through the next few years? That's how I end up with the master's in education. I was going to do, I was in a PhD program in humanistic education at UCLA. And I was teaching at LA Hebrew High School. And I was fortunate to become a teaching assistant in the pro credential program at UCLA School of Education. So between those two jobs, I was able to support myself you know, living in a two-bedroom apartment in Westwood with a roommate. Later on, I taught for a decade, part-time, but still it was really very interesting, a course at UCLA undergrads, a course called The Fiction of Conflict. It was the Middle East conflict taught through novels written by Arabs and Israelis, no American Jews, in translation. And there was a lot of stuff available in translation. That wasn't a problem on both sides. Uh, I also got a job teaching at night at UCLA Extension. And in the way I learned to write, which was kind of self-taught, I taught myself the stock market. And I became a fairly proficient 
stock market person because what I used was the same kind of skills as a novelist. I don't believe in charts. I don't believe in crypto. I'm not interested in fads, but I love a good story. So for example, in recent time, I came across that Eli Lilly, the giant pharmaceutical company, has two new drugs in about to be approved, one for Alzheimer's and one for weight loss. So the same way I would do research, you know, I'd figure out what I was learning. I called my broker. I said, look into this. He said, the Alzheimer's drug is a $5 billion drug and the weight loss drug is a $100 billion drug. It's going to be the biggest drug in the history of mankind. This is a lot in the news now uh, because like Ozempic is the same drug. They're diabetes drugs that are used for weight loss. So I bought stock. So between those various teaching jobs, the stock market and the royalties I did earn, the Damascus cover actually did very well for a first novel. I remember the editor saying to me at Dutton, don't blow the money because a lot of first novelists, you've done better than 90% of first novels. He said, and people think it's easy. And it's not, it may not remain easy. And it didn't remain easy, actually, for me. I'd like certain people, say Daniel Silva, but he deserves the credit he's gained. So, and I was also, my father was very cautious, even though he was successful. I often tell this to people. He never charged anything on a credit card he couldn't pay for. He never bought anything on credit in his life other than real estate. If he couldn't afford a new car, he didn't buy it. So I grew up in that same kind of environment. I bought my first house at 27 in a mixed integrated neighborhood for $60,000. And 14 years later, sold it and moved into Beverlywood, which is now kind of a high-end modern Orthodox neighborhood in Los Angeles. And I've been here 29 years and every real estate person in the city wants to buy my house. They don't want to see it. They just want to knock it down. And somebody with Orthodox with four kids who can walk to shul from here wants to buy it. My next door neighbor told me, you don't need a broker. I have seven friends who would buy your house. So the combination of frugality. Uh, I was talking to my trainer at the gym. And he wanted me to see this movie, Collateral, I think it's called. And I missed it in the theaters. He says, it's on Amazon. So I looked at it. It's 1995 to rent. I said, I'll wait. I'll wait until it comes on HBO for free. So there's a certain frugality, although I'm improving a little bit. As I said, I, I went for the 50 bucks on the flight to Baltimore to not sit in the, mo- in the middle aisle seat. Uh, and I think I'm ready to fly business class too on anything abroad. Uh, I went to the set of Damascus government in Casablanca, and I bought, they picked up the hotel and I bought uh, business class tickets for myself because it was a, you know, it's an indie film, even though it had big actors in it, it wasn't a big Hollywood production. So that's how I managed. 
Okay, got it. So it perfectly transitions into my next question, which is how did your how and when did your book, Damascus Cover, get turned into a film and talk about that journey? Well, I didn't tell anybody because it seemed so unlikely. In 2005, again, through this Jewish Institute in Simi Valley, which is the largest Jewish property outside of Israel, I can't remember, it's 1,000 or 2,000 acres, the Brandeis-Bardeen Institute. Um, I've been involved in that place in my 20s. And one of the people I knew there was working at the Israeli consulate in Los Angeles. And another sort of director who was working part-time at the consulate told her he wanted to do a Middle East picture. She went home, pulled the Damascus cover off her shelf, handed it to him. Some days later, he called me up and said, let's meet at Pete's Coffee. And he brought contracts that he wanted to film it. And I thought, well, the book's 40 years old. There doesn't seem to be a big gold rush for it. And I sort of glanced through the papers and I signed them. Uh, he then, and I often talk, talk to people about this. Everything in making money is about, excuse me, everything about making a film is about raising money. If you can raise the money, you can get the film made. Distribution is something else. But you can get it made because you can hire everybody you need. Actors work. Sometimes big actors, and Sir John Hurt, who I believe is Academy Award winner for Elephant Man. He was in 1984. You know, he died subsequently. This was his last film. He would, you know, you get lucky. He had a house in Morocco. And so they offered, because he plays the head of the Mossad, it's a secondary role, they were able to charge, he was able, they were able to pay him his day rate for a week. So they shot all his, and he told the director, you know, I'm coming on Sunday and I'm leaving on Friday at five o'clock. So everything you want from me, you better get done by then. And he did, and they were able to pay his day rate, you know, rather than, his star rate, because the other thing is these actors like to work and a typical production only takes a couple months and they'd rather be working for, for less than their big Hollywood fee in order to make a picture they like. Uh, it took 10 years to raise the money and finally he had the money and boom, a lot of these countries give tax credits I'm talking to some people in Jordan now about filming the Syrian sunset because they like the publicity of showing the locales and their buildings and their streets and their whatever. So they give you tax incentives to film there. Uh, I'm just meeting with somebody, a director on Saturday coming to my house to my from neighbors don't seem to mind. Uh, they don't mind. They're actually fabulous. Last Shabbat, my next door neighbor brought flowers in her garden and a bottle of bourbon, you know, at six o'clock and said, you know, Shabbat Shalom. So, you know, it's a happy neighborhood. So that's what happened. And he was able finally to raise the money in a British production. So we had to have all EU actors. So Jonathan Rhys Myers is uh, Irish, well known for Bendit Like Beckham and the tutors on Showtime. 
uh, Woody Allen movie with Scarlett Johansson, Matchpoint is the name of that. Sir John Hurt is a world-class actor. So I was a very fortunate fellow and they shot the film in two months in Casablanca with some, what they call a B-roll. They couldn't afford to take the actors to Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem with just a camera crew, shoot the locales, drone footage, and then splice it. There's a scene in Mea Sharim in Jerusalem that's actually shot in Casablanca and then spliced together with extras in uh, Jerusalem. And it looks pretty good. It's pretty well done. I went for 10 days of the two months uh, to Casablanca. I didn't go to Jerusalem. And I remember the producer who'd made a lot of films and some well-known films said, you're going to be bored. You want to go to Fez and Marrakesh. Casablanca, as someone said to me, is a lot like Long Beach in California. It's a big port city, but it's a big city. So everything you want there, you need a carpet factory, you need a villa, you need a beachfront restaurant. It exists there. Uh, I didn't go anywhere. I stayed I went out with the film crew every 10 days. They're very impressed because I landed at something like six in the morning. It was a British crew and I went out with them at 8.30 on the shoot. But I didn't really tell them that I told you I'd sprung for business class and I had a full seat that, you know, felt, go, went down. I took a sleeping pill and I slept the whole way from New York to Morocco. So by 8.30 in the morning, I was ready to go out with the crew and I went out for 10 days and then flew to Paris. And on the flight from Paris to Tel Aviv, I'm talking to the jovial Israeli next to me about Aki Avni, the Israeli actor who I just met the day before, who's in Damascus cover. He says to me, well, very modestly, Aki is a friend. This was Menachem Rickless, one of Israel's most prominent directors who happened to be sitting next to me on the flight. He later, connected me with Letitia Ido, who was a Lebanese-French actress, best known as Shirin in Fauda, and most recently in Liaisons on um, Apple TV and Citadel. So we're talking to her about, we became friends, and we're talking to her about playing in the Sir Syrian sunset, if we can get this film version, because she can. I need a Syrian is a Syrian Jew, and she's a Lebanese uh, Christian. She's perfect, you know, and she's very well beloved from Fauda. You know, she's the tall love interest in the first few seasons, so people know her. Uh, so I'm having a little bit of a late renaissance. My son's established. Right. No, it's all right. Mm. Fascinating. Were you were you on I site? I think they for made a few any errors in the filming? film. Um, typical Hollywood kind of things. For example, mm -hmm. Jonathan Reese Myers is a magnetic personality. He was in one of the Mission Impossible films. He's highly passionate. He's an autodidact. I think he got an Emmy for Elvis, or Emmy or Golden Globe. I forget. I think which one it was. He taught himself to play guitar. Okay. But the Damascus yeah. cover, this is why the book holds up better 
essentially than the film does and why the book seems to still be doing very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character was in his 50s, downtrodden. I was in my 20s. I felt a little downtrodden from Berkeley. So mm-hmm. I transmuted that into somebody in their 50s. Because it was mm-hmm. Hollywood, they cast Reese Myers, who was 38. So they had to do a few gyrations in the plot to make him mm-hmm. beaten down and downtrodden. And I don't think it worked as well as if they would have found someone in their 50s who was more authentically worn down by the world. So I think that that was just a Hollywood mistake. And I think the director realized it subsequently. Uh, But the story holds up. The director said he used the spine of the story, but, you know, probably not atypically. I'm more passionate about the novel, which is mine, than the book, than the film, which is theirs. But overall, I'm happy with it. And of course, just from the simplest level, happy it was made. I wish I would have met Sir John Hurt, but I was not there during that week of his film. No, I, there's some characters, the Syrian sunset has what all my readers tell me is mm-hmm. the best character. Well, two characters. I have an Israeli character <laughs> who yeah. is resembled after a friend of mine, Abraham Infeld in Jerusalem. A lot of people know he's the chairman emeritus of Hillel, one of the creators of Birthright, lectures to all the Birthright groups. I love it. And now, he's in four of my novels, this character, Shy. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. I just you. gave so, a speech at a temple in are Santa you, Rosa, Are you California. overall happy with how the, the film came out? Shy's in the series. What experience like? What are the Shy novels? I want to read all of them. Okay. So that's Bullets of Palestine, To Destroy Jerusalem, and The Spies Gamble, that sort of trilogy that can be read separately. There's standalone mm-hmm. books. But... I created a character for the Syrian Sunset, which is a book about the Syrian mm-hmm. Civil War and how we allowed Russia to run rampant in Syria, turned it over to Putin, which probably encouraged him to attack Ukraine because he saw the West wasn't going to stand up to him in Syria, although they did ultimately in Ukraine, probably to his surprise. Mm-hmm. So I needed an oligarch who was a friend of Putin's And I had been to go back to this first trip to the Soviet Union in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan. And I met a bunch of Jewish tailors by just serendipity in old Tashkent, who spoke Yiddish. And I remembered that Colin Powell had also spoken Yiddish. Uh, People know this, although it's not generally known. He worked at a Jewish baby furniture company as a kid in New York, and he learned Yiddish. So I said, what if I create an oligarch who speaks Yiddish and is a friend of Putin, who kind of has a push and pull relationship with the Mossad? You know, he can help them when he wants and, you know, berate them when he wants to. So I created this character, which has turned out to be my funniest character. He's a big Tom Hanks fan. And he says, if you remember the film Castaway, the famous Hanks film 
where he's on a desert island with the basket, the volleyball mm-hmm. Wilson, exactly. Okay, and so now you but if you recall, about what was the plane that went down? Making a movie of the it was a FedEx sunset. flight Anything in Moscow. That you have that you're working on? The film up, opens with about? Tom Hanks working for FedEx in Moscow airport. So my oligarch says to a CIA agent and Israeli agent, you are serious men. But I want you to know this. I do not believe Tom Hanks would work for FedEx. I believe he would be save Private Ryan, Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't work for FedEx. And it becomes a gag that goes through the entire novel, The Syrian Sunset. So I would like to do, do another book using him. I haven't quite come to how it's going to be yet. In fact, I'm going to New Mexico tomorrow or this weekend to stay with old college friends. And I decided that's kind of the resting period. I'm going to come back and focus less on promotion, let the film people run with what they can do after I meet with them this weekend and try to think about what I might write about next. But maybe something important to say, I'd like to say, if I can fit it in. My three Israel-Palestinian novels are about reconciliation and each side seeing the the humanity of the other. I felt very clearly in all my writing that my mother and my father's family were all seen as subhuman. And I don't want to treat anybody as the other, whether they be African-Americans, Latinos in Los Angeles, where they're work in all the restaurants and cafes. The, the waitress at one of the cafes asked me this morning for a selfie with her because she discovered who I was, not that I'm so famous. but And one of my favorite reviews was from Al-Fajar, the Palestinian paper in East Jerusalem, about Bullets of Palestine saying, when I read this book, I started seeing Israelis differently. I started seeing them as human beings and not conquerors. So I'm interested in both in the same way when I taught comparative fiction at UCLA, my Jewish students wonderfully were most interested in the Arab novels because they'd read almost those already. And my Arab students and third world students were most interested in the Israeli novels because they'd never been introduced to them before. So I'm interested I think the only future in the Middle East for everybody were in an era of reconciliation is for people to come together. And so that's greatly what my work had been about. So even my oligarch in the Syrian sunset is a sympathetic human being. That's what I'm looking for, sympathetic characters. I love it. And which brings me to a question I was going to ask you earlier. So you you chose the the genre of the thriller or the sort of historical fiction as opposed to nonfiction, right? Or politics in terms of, you know, your, your platform. Why do you think that is equally or more effective in terms of achieving the goal that you simply outlined two minutes ago? I'm not sure it is more effective, but it really was the only I do some journalism, you know, articles for most of the major Jewish magazines I have over the years, from Moment Magazine to the Jerusalem Report. But I was really sitting up in my room as a kid reading fiction. 
You know, I went through the Hardy Boys, as I said, Tom Swift and his flying machine. Then I went through the classics, which I, you know, I bought the paperbacks. And I really wasn't a historian per se, though I like the research a lot. Uh, and the, the novels are highly accurate historically. But it just seemed to fit my personality, my interests, my background. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not an academic, you know, even though they allowed me to teach at UCLA with a master's degree for a decade. Uh, it was a part-time adjunct. I wasn't a faculty member. So it really was probably as most people do, trying to make and extend the natural talents that I had rather than try to swim upstream about something that I wasn't much. It wasn't really a choice. It really was who I was and how I could proceed. And I think it was informed by all these experiences in Russia at a young age. You know, I learned a lot. I learned when I was in Moscow, I needed to take notes. They taught me in London how to write in a paperback book, and I still have it, The Hobbit, in milk. Then when we got out to London, they took an iron and ironed the pages and burned the milk. So I wasn't of the photographic memory type of... Wait a second. Wait a second. Pause on that. They taught you how to write in milk, and then it would... You have to unpack that a little bit. You said that too quickly. Oh, I can get it really quickly for you. So this is the book that I had. You know, let's see if okay. you can, if I can put it up here. You can see the brown and the letters. Yeah. I got a fountain pen. I had a fountain pen with me from London. You can buy milk even in the limits of the USSR. I know closer it can help. It gets a little blurry. Let's see. Right. Now, the book's falling apart. But so I wrote in milk in the page. So if anybody confiscated it or looked at it, they wouldn't see the milk. It dried. You couldn't see it. It dried. It evaporated. It dried. So the brown is when we got back to London, I took a real, a conventional iron that you would iron clothes with, and we ironed the pages. The milk burns and is readable. So wow. this was the environment that I lived in, you know, in my early 20s. So there was a kind of pretty natural step to write spy novels, suspense novels, Mossad novels. And, Absolutely. you know, I already had that junior abroad in Jerusalem. I knew the language and the culture fairly well. I went back for a second year to a school called Pardes in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And by then I was pretty steeped and I also had met people. So that's kind of how it happened. I love it. Okay. Well, I, this is so fascinating, but we do have to wrap up here. And the question I always ask every guest on the Holy Sparks podcast is, what do you feel the Jewish world needs now most and why? You know, I was reading this morning some articles. And the Jewish world needs two things. And this is going to be a little radical, and some of your, I may not play to much of your, to some of your audience. The Jewish world needs, in a way, the diaspora world to become a little bit more independent of Israel. 
the day schools. My son will talk about, and he's 29. He went to day school and he said, it was Israel, 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 Holocaust, 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 and not so much Midrash. Um, we are seeing a liberal movement in Israel. We don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. But what's important is for, let's call it the American Jewish community, to strengthen itself, to strengthen its values, to become a more independent edifice where the kids are going to day school, are focused more on moral values and issues and teaching and Talmud, and not on the twin pillars of Israel and Holocaust. In terms of Israel, and I'm seeing this now, particularly in the new movement, there has to be a reconciliation with the Palestinians, however that's gonna come about. I wrote an article in 1987 in the Los Angeles Times and saying, will Israel turn into a permanently besieged fortress? Just a little bit about what's happening today. And what I'm seeing, and I read about it, you know, literally this morning, as part of this democracy movement in Israel today, by this young generation, greatly, they're also saying we need democracy everywhere. There's got to be a settlement with the Palestinians. We don't want to live in a country where we're perpetually and permanently occupying another people and sending our kids to patrol refugee camps where they're at risk and where they're also doing things they don't want to be doing. So I think those two things are what I want to see with Israel, which with Judaism, which is a slightly more independence among the diaspora Jewish world, which isn't to say we support Israel any less, but we don't focus our identity. We don't focus the raison d'etre. The reason we teach our kids to be Jewish is not Israel and the Holocaust. We teach our kids to be Jewish because of the long traditions, history, culture, and teachings of the religion. So that's where I see things going. What I'm going to write about next, I have no idea. I, you know, I think I'd like to tackle Iran in some way because I think this is such a big subject. Uh, you see really courageous women in Iran now starting to challenge, you know, the government and and covering their hair and wearing the hijab. So I think there's some kind of a book in Syria, Iran, the Mossad, and my, my Russian oligarch. After I have my vacation this week, I'm going to sit down and start to read a little bit to see what I think. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for that response. It was definitely a unique response of all the guests that I've had. And uh, I want to encourage people to check out your books howardkaplanbooks.com, of course, and on Amazon, and go and look up the movie. You could see it on, I think you said Tubi, or there's several other platforms. You can check out the Damascus, Damascus cover. And I just want to end with a blessing, and I just want to bless you that, uh, A, you should have a very relaxing holiday in Mexico, and you should let go of the cares of the world and have your own personal Shabbat experience so you come back refreshed and deliver some more content because I feel like your genre is really a... a I like to see, I consider Judaism a buffet and there's so many dishes and there's so many ways in, right? And you have a unique way in 
to not only historical experience, but Jewish experience. And I hope that you will continue to use your platform to elevate Jewish life here and abroad. And I thank you so much for reaching out to be on the Holy Sparks podcast. And we look forward to being in touch with you very soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.